Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and, and welcome to the, to the school. We have a fascinating and volatile topic before us this evening. To introduce myself briefly, first, I'm Professor Gwyn Prince. I'm research professor of the school. And the reason I'm chairing this topic is that I started working on climate policy. Uh, the first paper I wrote, I think, was 1986. So I've been there really all the way through as the topic has uh, risen and fallen in public interest. And we're meeting here this evening, as, as I'm sure we all know, at a very um, confusing moment in the politics of, of the climate, because we've gone through a couple of years where it was extremely visible and very much uh, the center of, of elite policy concern in many countries. And now we are going through in 2008 a year where there are many various and confusing signs. Uh, the science, it turns out, is nothing like as straightforward as uh, people were originally told. And there is, if you look at the opinion polling, uh, a growing skepticism about the whole nature of whether there's a problem at all in many, many people's minds in this country and in many others, which for those of us who think there is a real problem is, is a problem. Uh, that being so, we are extremely fortunate this evening in having uh, with us a very distinguished lecturer and a very distinguished respondent, uh, the lecturer in the form of Lord Lawson. Uh, Lord Lawson was, as I'm sure you know, Chancellor uh, of the Exchequer under Mrs. Thatcher between 1983 and 1989. And before that, in an area very cognate to the topic this evening, he was Secretary of State for Energy and he was financial secretary to the Treasury, which tends to happen to most chancellors, I think. It's the sort of place they go on the way to the hot seat. Uh, what he will be doing this evening, though, is to talk about another interest of his, and one that has become very prominent through the publication just recently of this book, which is entitled An Appeal to Reason, A Cool Look at Global Warming. If you wish, at the end of the lecture, there will be copies for sale outside. Uh, I think Waterstones will be more than delighted uh, to, um, to welcome you to that table. And Lord Lawson's going to be uh, lecturing for about 35 or 40 minutes. And after he's done so, then the floor will be taken by uh, my colleague, Dr. Simon Dietz. Simon is the deputy director of the newly opened Grantham Center here in the school, of which the overall director is Nick Stern, Lord Stern will be known to you all. Simon's a lecturer in the Department of Geography and Environment. He came recently to the school. Before that, he worked in the Treasury as one of the economic advisors on the Stern Review on the economics of climate change. Uh, he has a very distinguished academic career in the economics uh, of the climate coming from the University of East Anglia. And much of his current work is focused very much on questions of the economics of climate change, which makes him a highly appropriate person to lead us in our discussions and thoughts because uh, we will be hearing from Lord Lawson, that it's important that the topic is not confined solely to the, uh, the technical and the purely meteorological. One final thing before I cede the floor to our distinguished speaker is just to remind everybody to reach into their pockets, take these things out, and please switch them off. I mean, off. It's very important that it should be off because there's something mysterious that happens to the loudspeaker system if you, um, if you don't. 
Thank you very much for being so cooperative. And now, with great pleasure, Lord Lawson, may I offer you the floor. Well, thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm very happy to be here. I think it is a genius of timing on the part of the Dunn School of Economics. I wouldn't have expected anything less than genius. But nevertheless, it's a, some, it's a genius, of, it's a stroke of genius in timing to have a talk on global warming in the same week that we had snow in London for the f in October for the first time in over 70 years. Um, but I'm very grateful to the LSE for inviting me to give this lecture uh, on the subject matter of my recent book, uh, not least because the views that I expressed there, which I'm expressing tonight, are so politically incorrect uh, that it proved impossible for my agent, who is incidentally probably the leading literary agent in the country, to find a British publisher prepared to publish it. Uh, the issue is, of course, uh, as was indicated in the chairman's opening remarks, a highly uh, complex one, and it's impossible to do justice to in a single lecture, although I may, in an attempt to do so, uh, take a little bit longer than the time I've been allotted, but I hope that will be forgiven. Uh, the, so, for that reason, anyone who is conscious of the inevitable inadequacies of my talk this evening uh, should read the book, uh, where you will find, uh, incidentally, no fewer than 23 pages of notes, uh, giving sources and references for every statement which I make, uh, not to mention uh, 10 pages of bibliography for those who wish to read further. Uh, the complexity that I referred to a moment ago arises chiefly from the fact that the question of global warming and a rational response to it is a three-dimensional issue involving science, economics, and politics in almost equal measure. And each of these three dimensions is itself of considerable complexity. The thesis of my book in a nutshell is this that even if the majority view of the science uh, there's not uh, in any true sense a consensus, incidentally, but there is a majority view. If the majority view, even if the majority view is correct, the policy response we are told we must adopt of drastic curbs in carbon dioxide emissions doesn't make sense. So let's take a look at the moment, uh, for a moment, at the current orthodoxy as represented most authoritatively uh, by the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, whose most recent report, as you know, was published uh, last year. The IPCC process operates on three levels. There is the very lengthy report itself in three parts, covering the science of warming, the projected impacts of warming, which is also largely a scientific matter, and the economics. Very few people actually read the report. It's very long. Uh, uh, but the report is written by the scientists and economists most closely involved in the process. Then there are the so-called summaries for policymakers of each of these three sections, which are written by the bureaucrats. Uh, both international bureaucrats from the United Nations agencies and so on, and from national environment ministries, which are distinctly selective and unbalanced, and designed to stimulate governments into taking action. Uh, 
Finally, there are the alarmist press conferences given by the IPCC High Command, which bear little relationship whatever to the report itself, but of course do succeed in their objective of attracting media attention. In this lecture, I shall focus on the first of these levels, and the only legitimate one, which is the report itself. To get a line on how much global warming there's likely to be over the next 100 years, and what the practical impact of the consequent rise in global temperatures might be, the IPCC adds to the assumed nature of the link between atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide and temperature. Its estimates of how much carbon dioxide emissions are likely, in fact, to increase over the next 100 years based on a number of different economic development scenarios, and it then assesses the likely consequences of the resulting rise in world temperature. All the IPCC scenarios, incidentally, assume that over the present century, faster economic growth will mean that living standards in the developing world in the conventional sense of GDP per head of population will, to a very considerable extent, catch up with living standards in the developed world. In other words, by the year 2100, to a very considerable extent, poverty rarely has become history. Uh, indeed, the 21st century is projected to, be the, to, to show the greatest growth in living standards in recorded history, particularly, of course, in the developing world. If nothing else, I hope this will happen, uh, but if nothing else, it ought to cheer up those who, who've been told that disaster stares us in the face if we don't take urgent action to save the planet. It's only fair, of course, is to add that what I've just spelled out is what emerges from the IPCC's scenarios before deducting the, the projected cost to the economy of the 21st century global warming. I'll come to that, and it will be seen that it doesn't fundamentally change the picture at all. It's true that the IPCC's projections of 21st century economic growth may prove to be too optimistic. But in that case, given the assumed growth emissions temperature nexus, there'll be less global warming too. As it is, the temperature projections it does come up with in its 2007 report, the so-called fourth assessment report, range from a best estimate of a rise in the global average temperature by the year 2100 of 1.8 degrees centigrade for its lowest emission scenario to a best estimate of a rise of 4 degrees centigrade for its highest emission scenario with a mean increase of slightly under 3 degrees centigrade. And these uh, temperature increases, incidentally, are over the 1990 to 1999 average. To convert the to increases over today's global mean temperature, it's necessary to deduct approximately 0.2 degrees centigrade. At this point, it might be a good idea to leave the for briefly to leave the rarefied world of the IPCC for a moment and to take a reality check. Is it really plausible that there is an ideal average world temperature, which by some happy chance has recently been visited on us, from which small departures in either direction would spell disaster. I think it's somewhat implausible. Moreover, 
while a sudden change would indeed be disruptive, what is at issue here is the prospect of a very gradual change over 100 years and more. In any case, average world temperature is simply a statistical artifact. Uh, the actual experience temperature varies enormously. It varies between winter and summer. It varies between day and night. And of course, in particular, it varies uh, greatly in different parts of the globe. And man, whose greatest quality is his adaptability, has successfully colonized most of the globe. Take two countries at different ends of the earth, uh, both of which are generally considered to be economic success stories. Finland and Singapore. The average annual temperature in Helsinki is less than 5 degrees centigrade. That in Singapore is in excess of 27 degrees centigrade, a difference of more than 22 degrees centigrade. If people can successfully cope with that, it isn't immediately apparent why they should not be able to adapt to a change of 3 degrees centigrade when they are given 100 years in which to do so. The IPCC does seek to assess the likely impact of projected global warming over the next 100 years, and it does so basically in two ways. First, it looks separately at five major headings, water, ecosystems, food, coasts, and health. Then, the second way, it adds all these impacts together to provide an overall figure for the cost to the world of projected global warming. Uh, this last is, of course, intended to be the net cost. It's clear that while warming brings costs, it also brings benefits. Uh, given the wide geographical variation in temperatures around the world, which I referred to a moment ago, it's obviously likely that while in the warmer regions, the costs could be expected to exceed the benefits, in the colder regions, the benefits might well exceed the costs. The IPCC report claims to take into account both costs and benefits, yet it devotes large amounts of space to the costs and very little to the benefits. It is difficult not to sense a lack of even-handedness, leading perhaps to a bias in the overall assessment. But let's take a brief look at the IPCC's five impact headings. The first, as I mentioned, is water, and I'll have a glass now. There is indeed a worldwide water problem, but it has nothing whatsoever to do with global warming. Indeed, scientists agree that uh, carbon dioxide-induced warming will tend to increase rather than reduce rainfall. The problem is the huge increase in the world's population, which has led to a massive increase in the demand for fresh water without any corresponding increase in the effective supply. Thus, improved water resource management and above all, the proper pricing of water are of the first importance. But what is abundantly clear is that cutting back on carbon dioxide emissions is irrelevant. As to ecosystems, here again, it is well established that, the, that those animal species at risk of extinction are threatened far more by other factors, such as deforestation, than they are by warming, which is at the most of marginal significance. The IPCC, moving from animals to humans, the IPCC's third heading, food, is clearly of the first importance to mankind. But what it has to say here in its report has not, I believe, been sufficiently reported. 
so I will quote it. Globally, the potential for food production is projected to increase with increases in uh, local average temperature over a range of one to three degrees centigrade. But above that, it is projected to decrease. And it will be recalled that the mean temperature increase suggested by the IPCC's various scenarios for the end of the present century is a little bit under three degrees centigrade. Moreover, and this is perhaps even more important, uh, this is an area where the scope for adaptation is particularly pronounced. It's not simply a matter of farmers uh, being able to make better use of irrigation and fertilizers and indeed to switch to strains and crops uh, better suited to warmer climes should the need arise, uh, something incidentally which will happen autonomously without any need for government intervention. It's also because we are in the early stages of a revolution in agricultural technology through the development of bioengineering and genetic modification. To be fair to the IPCC, the shoddy and alarmist Stern review is even more deficient when it comes to adaptation, as indeed it is on every other aspect of the global warming debate for that matter. A characteristic example of the Stern approach is its stark warning that, and I quote, a recent study predicts up to a 70% reduction in crop yields by the end of the century under these high temperature conditions, assuming no adaptation, unquote. Not only does the assumption of no adaptation render this estimate completely worthless, but when we come to the nature of the, this solitary recent study, which is revealed only in a discrete footnote in a completely different chapter of the review, we discover that, and I quote again, strictly speaking, I rather like that, strictly speaking, strictly speaking, these results are for ground nuts only, uh, and then only in northern India. And, uh, the IPCC's fourth impact category is coasts, where it's concerned about sea level rise, brought about by a combination of ocean warming expanding the volume of water, and some melting of the Greenland and West Antarctic ice sheets, causing coastal flooding in low-lying areas. Sea levels have, in fact, been rising very gradually for as long as records exist. And there's little sign of any acceleration so far. Indeed, if anything, the reverse is the case. Uh, and uh, the, the most up-to-date studies uh, suggest that during the second half of the 20th century, the rise in sea levels, the annual ri average rise in sea levels was less than it was in the first half. Nevertheless, the IPCC does project that there will indeed be a slight acceleration this century. To be precise, it projects a rise of a total, over the 100 years as a whole, of between 18 and 59 centimeters. That's by the year 2100, a far cry incidentally, from the 20-foot rise that is one of the more startling images in Mr. Gore's fanciful film. Given our capacity to adapt to gradual change, a sea level rise of at most, taking the upper figure, at most less than a quarter of an inch a year is not, frankly, on a scale to be greatly alarmed about. The fifth and the last of the IBC's impact categories is health. There are, of course, very serious health problems of many kinds throughout much of the developing world, which need to be tackled in their own right, uh, global warming or no global warming, 
much more urgently than they are being at the present time. And for most of them, there is absolutely no medical mystery about how to do this. One of the worst of the health problems in the developing world is malaria. In its previous report, the 2001 report, the IPCC focused heavily on a projected increase in malaria brought on by warming. And this features prominently in the Gore film and is also to be found in the Stern Review. However, malaria experts, including the world's leading authority, uh, Professor Paul Reiter, head of the Insects and Infectious Diseases Unit of the Institut Pasteur in Paris, pointed out that in fact temperature has very little bearing on the spread of malaria, which is mainly caused by other factors altogether. Uh, indeed, the disease was endemic throughout Europe until the late 17th century, even during the so-called Little Ice Age. Somewhat chastened, the IPCC's latest report confines itself to concluding with somewhat baffling ambiguity, and I quote, climate change is expected to have some mixed effects, such as the decrease or increase of the range and transmission potential of malaria in Africa, unquote. The truth of the matter is that the connection between health and global warming is, if anything, precisely the reverse of what the IPCC assumes. The major cause of ill health and the deaths that it brings in the developing world is poverty. Faster economic growth means less poverty, but according to the man-made uh, carbon dioxide warming uh, theory incorporated in the IPCC's scenario, a warmer world. And it is clear that warmer but richer is considerably healthier than colder but poorer. So it's perhaps not surprising that in the IPCC's November uh, 2007 synthesis report, in a table which purports to show, uh, and I quote, uh, major projected impacts of global warming by sector, which are ranked from virtually certain through very likely down to likely. Uh, so far as health is concerned, the only outcome ranked as virtually certain is reduced human mortality from decreased cold exposure. What then are, the, so much for the individual uh, aspects, the individual dimensions of the impacts which they study. What then of the IPC's overall figure for the likely net cost of a warmer world on the assumption that no measures are taken to curb carbon dioxide emissions and after carefully examining all the likely adverse consequences and rather less carefully, it must be said, the benefits. It will be recalled that the report's best estimates of the likely warming of the planet over the next 100 years range from a rise of 1.8 degrees centigrade or Celsius, whatever you like to call it, to one of four degrees, depending on the emissions scenario chosen. The report then takes the upper end of the range, a four degrees centigrade warming, and claims that overall, this would mean a loss by the end of the 21st century of anything between 1% and 5% of global gross domestic product. It adds that this is the global average figure and the developing countries will experience larger percentage losses. Now, given that this derives from the top end of the range, and given that the IPCC insists that all its scenarios are of equal validity, 
It's clear that on the basis of their own methodology, there may be no net cost at all from global warming over the next 100 years. It may even be beneficial. But let's err uh, on the side of caution and take not only the top end of the IPCC's warming range, a rise of 4 degrees Celsius over the next 100 years, but also the top end of its projection of the net damages, a loss of 5% of world GDP. At this point, we need to do some simple arithmetic. Heeding the IPCC's very proper warning that the loss will be greater than 5% for the developing countries, and thus less than 5% for the developed world, I shall make the calculations on the assumption of a 10% loss of GDP for the developing world and a 3% loss in the developed world. Again, to err on the side of caution, let's take a look at the gloomiest of the IPCC's six economic, main economic development scenarios, according to which living standards measured in the conventional way as uh, GDP per head would rise in the absence of global warming by 1% a year in the developed world and by 2.3% a year in the developing world. It can then readily be calculated using, to repeat, a cost of global warming of 3% of GDP in the developed world and as much as 10% of GDP in the developing world, that the disaster facing the planet is that our great-grandchildren in the developed world would in 100 years' time, I'm assuming that you're younger than I am, uh, in 100 years' time be only 2.6 times as well off as we are today instead of 2.7 times as well off. And that their contemporaries in the developing world would be only 8.5 times roughly as well off as people in the developing world are today instead of 9.5 times as well off. And this, remember, is the IPCC's very worst case, and one based, moreover, as they all are, on a ludicrously pessimistic uh, assumption of mankind's ability to adapt to gradual warming should it occur. Indeed, I believe the single most serious flaw in the IPCC's analysis of the likely impact of global warming is its grudging and inadequate treatment of adaptation, which leads to a systematic exaggeration of the putative cost of global warming, if indeed, as I mentioned earlier, over the next hundred years there's any net cost at all. The IPCC prefaces its assessment with the statement that, and I quote, the magnitude and timing of impacts will vary with the amount and timing of climate change, and in some cases, the capacity to adapt, unquote. But of course, adaptation will always occur. The capacity to adapt is arguably the most fundamental characteristic of mankind, and is certainly the reason why, as a species, we're the most successful, in the evolutionary terms, the most successful species on the planet. We've adapted to different temperatures over the millennia uh, during the time that we've been around, and we adapt to date, as I mentioned, to widely different temperatures around the world. And that adapt adaptive capacity is increasing all the time with the development of technology. Yet the concept of static adaptive capacity is central to the IPCC's entire analysis. Thus, in its review of the dangers in different parts of the world, it explicitly acknowledges then in the case of Australia and New Zealand, these will be limited, these damages, by the fact that, and I quote, the region has substantial adaptive capacity due to well-developed economies and scientific and technical capabilities, unquote. Presumably, the same applies to Europe and North America, 
although curiously the IPCC doesn't say so. But it does express concern about the effect of projected warming on the poorer regions of the world, particularly in Africa and parts of Asia, because of their low adaptive capacity. This somewhat patronizing judgment seems ill-founded for at least three reasons. First, as we have seen on the IPCC's own economic growth projections on which its temperature projections totally rest, the poorer regions are, for the most part, not going to be poor in 100 years' time. Second, for those parts that do remain poor, overseas aid programs will clearly be focused on improving the adaptive capacity should the need arise. Some of it will happen automatically through technology transfer, but there will be a need to assist it uh, through overseas aid programs, and this is incidentally a very much more realistic objective for overseas aid than the promotion of economic development is. And third, there will almost certainly be substantial technological development over the next 100 years, which will significantly enhance adaptive capacity worldwide. In many cases, I mentioned agriculture, but in many other cases too, far beyond what it is at the present time. In short, the IPCC's analysis and conclusions are seriously undermined by the systematic underestimate of the benefits of adaptation, deriving both from its assumption that adaptive capacity is severely and permanently constrained by economic underdevelopment in the developing world. And its assumption, too, that for the world as a whole, it is constrained uh, by the limits of existing technology. That is the assumption that there will be no further technological development over the next 100 years. This last is clearly absurd in the important case of agriculture and food production and is implausible in general. And as a result, the IPCC's overall cost assessment inevitably suffers from a pronounced upward bias. It's true that some forms of adaptation, such as the creation of and or improvement of sea and flood defenses, would, if and when they became necessary, require government intervention. The IPCC, needless to say, adopts its characteristically downbeat approach to this, declaring that, and I quote once again if I may, adaptation for coastal regions will be more challenging in developing countries than developed countries due to constraints on adaptive capacity, unquote. The same old song. It must be said that the challenge ought to be a manageable one. The Dutch, after all, managed it pretty effectively, even with the technology of the 16th century. And technology has scarcely stood still over the past half millennium. But again, this might well be a suitable focus for overseas aid, should the need arise. In short, even if the conventional scientific wisdom is correct, there remains the fundamental question of what is the most cost-effective way of addressing the likely consequences of global warming. Is it to adapt to them, as man has adapted throughout the ages and throughout the world to the vagaries of the climate, or is it to attempt to prevent them, even if this means radically transforming the global economy at very considerable cost? The answer, I believe, is clear. The alarmists claim that global warming presents some threats to the planet that are so dire that adaptation isn't possible. But there is nothing whatever in the current state of climate science to warrant this. I'll take a look uh, briefly at the three most frequently mentioned catastrophic consequences. First, uh, in the light of uh, Katrina hurricanes. 
of the 10 most severe Atlantic hurricanes since 1900, the most thorough studies so far undertaken suggest that, suggest that five occurred in the first half of the period and five in the second half. Seven out of the ten occurred before 1975, that's to say before the period when the bulk of the modest 20th century global warming began. And the worst by far was the great Miami hurricane of 1926. In the eyes of the insurance industry, of course, there's been a significant rise in hurricane damage over the years, particularly in recent years. But that's simply because the huge rise in both population and property values in the affected areas has inevitably caused a substantial increase in damage costs in real terms for any given tropical storm of any given magnitude. The other, second thing that they turn to is the melting of the polar ice sheets and its alleged effect on sea levels. Clearly, the melting of floating polar ice can't cause any rise in sea levels, just as the melting of ice cubes in your glass of water or whatever else you have a glass of can't cause the water or the other liquid to overflow the glass. The issue is solely about the land-borne ice of the poles. And the overwhelming mass of this, and thus of most significance for global sea levels in this context, is not over Greenland in the north, but over the vast continent of Antarctica in the south. Here it is perfectly true that the West Antarctic ice sheet covering the peninsula which points its finger towards the southern tip of uh, South America is showing evidence of melting and glacier retreat. But the West Antarctic Peninsula accounts for only 10% of Antarctic land-borne ice. It has a different climate from the rest of Antarctica. And in most of the other 90% of the continent, according to the most recent research, the ice sheet appears to be growing. Finally, there's a fear of a reversal of the Gulf Stream, and that's paradoxically the onset in Europe of very much colder weather. Although there's ample evidence of fluctuations in the strength of the Gulf Stream from time to time, research, and it's been monitored very carefully over the recent years in particular, research has shown no sign of any secular slowdown over the past decade. Nor is there any reason to suppose that there will be even if there were to be further global warming over the coming decades, since the Gulf Stream is largely a surface current and thus uh, overwhelmingly a wind-driven phenomenon. It's clear, therefore, that even after looking carefully at the worst nightmare scenarios the alarmists can conjure up, there's no reason to believe that even if the IPCC's projections of global warming over the coming century are realized, there is anything to which mankind can't adapt. Moreover, to the extent that there is a problem of global warming, it is manifestly a global problem. And if the chosen policy for addressing it is to cut back on carbon dioxide emissions, the cutback clearly has to be global too. Thus, the perspective of the developing world is of the first importance. And it's in the developing world, particularly China and India, where emissions are growing fastest. Indeed, China has already overtaken the United States as the biggest single source of emissions, and its, lead it is, and its lead is projected to become ever wider, largely because its rapidly growing economy is so heavily dependent on energy-intensive manufacturing industry, but also because its fuel of choice is carbon-rich coal. China, China is currently in the midst of a sustained multi-year program 
of building a new large coal-fired power station every five days, increasing its power generating capacity each year by roughly the equivalent of Britain's total capacity. Both China and India have made their position on this issue abundantly clear, and it has to be said that it's thoroughly understandable and reflects the perspective of most of the developing world. Their overriding priority is to continue along the path of rapid economic growth and development, which means inter alia using the cheapest available source of energy, which now, in the foreseeable future, is carbon-based energy. We don't use carbon-based energy because we love carbon. We use carbon-based energy because it's the cheapest source of energy. That's why we use it. And that is very important to the developing world, and China and India, uh, I'll make that clear, that is their view. Because only in this way can the widespread poverty, which still afflicts most of their people, be relieved uh, at any reasonable pace. And in the case of China, its leaders fear that to slow this down would cause considerable social unrest and political upheaval. Moreover, both China and India observed that the industrialized countries of the Western world achieved their prosperity thanks to cheap carbon-based energy, and they believe it's now their turn to do the same. And they add that if there is now a problem of excessive carbon dioxide concentrations in the Earth's atmosphere, it is the responsibility of those who overwhelmingly caused it to remedy it. At the very most, they are prepared to concede that if and when their emissions per head of population have risen to the levels of emissions per head in the rich world, which will not, of course, ha occur for a very long time indeed, if ever, there might then be the basis for an international agreement which would be fair to all. But until then, there can be no question of their agreeing to any significant binding restrictions on their emissions. So where does this leave the prospect of an effective global agreement to prevent further growth of carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere? Not, it has to be said, in very good shape. It is perfectly true that political leaders in both the United States and the major developing countries pay lip service to the idea of a global agreement on limiting emissions, providing, this is an important proviso, that the burden of doing so is equitably shared. But what, for example, the US Congress and the European Union consider an equitable sharing of the burden? is worlds apart from what China and India consider equitable. And there is no prospect whatever of this chasm. It's far more than a gap, this chasm being closed. And I have to say that I find the standoff between the developed world and much of the developing world on this issue, and in particular the thesis expressed on both sides of the Atlantic, that if China and India insist on the so-called unfair advantage of cheap energy, there will have to be compensating tariffs uh, imposed on their exports, both unwise and dangerous. Earlier this year, Lord Stern, who you mentioned in your introduction, uh, put forward his own proposal for closing this gap in an LSE paper entitled Key Elements of a Global Deal on Climate Change. The essence of this proposal was that the, at, the, the, at the Copenhagen meeting next year, on which the, successor, which the successor to the Kyoto Protocol, which expires in 2012, is scheduled to be agreed. The developing countries should commit to cutting emissions by between 80% and 90% below 1990 levels by 2050. In other words, more or less complete decarbonization, with the exception of air travel, for which there is no alternative fuel. 
with credible interim targets, while the developing countries would simply commit to taking on binding national targets by 20, 2020, subject to, and I quote, a clear demonstration of effective, equitable, and efficient action by developed countries, unquote. In addition, he suggests that there should be additional financial flows from the developed world to the developing countries rising to $100 billion a year by 2030. It is perhaps surprising that Lord Stern is so concerned about saving the planet when he is clearly living on a different one. Uh, it's not simply that decarbonization on this 80% to 90% scale isn't technically attainable unless the technology known as carbon capture and storage, by which coal and or gas continue to be burned with the resulting carbon dioxide, instead of being released into the atmosphere, is captured and buried underground, unless this becomes available on a commercial scale, which incidentally Mr. Alastair Darling pointed out last year when he was energy minister, may never happen. Uh, it's also that back in the real world, a Stern-type deal has absolutely no chance whatever of getting through the American Congress. It wouldn't even be acceptable to the European Union, whose environment ministers meeting earlier this month unanimously declared that for a successor to Kyoto to be agreed next year, the rapidly developing countries, i.e. China and India in particular, would have to commit to reducing their emissions by 15% to 30% below business as usual by 2020. It's true that the European Union is theoretically committed to going it alone uh, up to a point, having agreed in principle to cut its emissions unilaterally by 20% by 2020, 2020. But that is all. And in fact, the European Union is now in total disarray over the issue, with a number of individual member states refusing to accept their shares of the 20% cut. Meanwhile, the United Kingdom, gallant little United Kingdom, responsible for less than 2% of global emissions, and influenced no doubt by the Stern proposal, is uniquely taking a masochistic lead in binding itself in the absurd climate change bill currently before Parliament to a statutorily enforceable reduction of at least 80% uh, in its emissions by 2050. This is intended to be an example to the rest of Europe and to the world as a whole and to show global leadership. There is, however, not the slightest indication that anyone has any intention of following this futile and self-sacrificing lead. The problem with one or more countries going it alone is not simply the heavy cost to those who do so, but it is a heavy cost. It's also the nugatory reduction in overall global emissions that this would lead to. That's because the only practical way of cutting back on carbon dioxide emissions is to raise the cost of carbon-based energy, whether by taxation or by the rationing system known as emissions trading, so that energy saving becomes more attractive and more important, non-carbon-based energy becomes more competitive. But as energy prices in, for example, Europe rise, with the prospect of further rises to come, energy-intensive industries and processes would progressively decline in Europe and expand in countries like China, where cheap energy remained available. No doubt, Europe could at some cost adjust to this. We're rich enough to do so. But it's difficult to see the point of it. For if carbon dioxide emissions in Europe are reduced only to see them further increased in, for example, China, 
the net reduction in global emissions will be greatly diminished. And this phenomenon, what the IPCC in its report refers to as leakage, would of course make a nonsense of the proposed Stern deal, even if it were agreed, which it's not going to be. The experience of the Kyoto Protocol is itself instructive in a number of ways. This bound only the developed countries, as you know, and committed them to cutting their emissions by a trivial 5% below 1990 levels by 2012. And with the exception of the United States, the developed countries duly and solemnly ratified the protocol. There is, of course, no enforcement mechanism, and it's clear that even this modest target will not be attained. The emissions of all the ratifying countries taken together are at present some 5% above uh, 1990 levels and rising. But as the energy economist Professor Dieter Helmers pointed out, the target would have been missed by a very substantially greater margin had there not been a continuing migration of manufacturing industry from the developed world to the developing world, uh, in particular, of course, China. Not only is the successor to Kyoto intended to be much more demanding, not a 5% cut, but one of at least 50% globally by 2050 for the world as a whole. But whereas under Kyoto, the developed world could effectively outsource emissions to the developing world to help come close to the target, there is nowhere for the world as a whole to outsource its emissions to. Perhaps it's uh, a little rash to assert that a global agreement of the severity we are told is necessary is unattainable, although it probably is for the reasons I've outlined. Uh, but if it is attained, it will certainly not be honored. In this context, the developed world has set the developing countries a very clear precedent. Uh, we haven't honored uh, in the developed world the miserable, the very small uh, reduction required in by Kyoto, which was ratified. Indeed, the most striking feature of the so-called climate change debate is the complete disconnection between rhetoric and reality. Despite the posturing of politicians throughout much of the world, despite the declaration that global warming is the greatest threat facing the planet, despite Kyoto, and despite innumerable gatherings of the great and the good, little, practice, little in practice has been done, and global carbon dioxide emissions <coughs> continue to rise. The reason for this is, is, of course, that fine words are cheap, whereas the 70% or more reduction in global carbon dioxide emissions, which would be required to stabilize carbon dioxide concentrations in the Earth's atmosphere, uh, would be very costly indeed. So how much would it cost to reduce carbon dioxide emissions per unit of output to the extent allegedly required? The only answer is that we don't know. But all the signs are that it would prove very expensive indeed. One test is to consider how high a carbon tax would need to be in order to generate the necessary change in behavior, both on the supply side and the demand side. And it's significant that, that that's something which those politicians who identify global warming as the greatest threat facing the planet are conspicuously, conspicuously reluctant to discuss, let alone to propose. What they do favor, it seems, is the less transparent means of raising the price of carbon-based energy, known as tap and trade. Raising the price by limiting the amount of uh, CO2 that can be emitted, and incidentally, raising money by selling the permits, which can then be traded. The pioneer of cap and trade in the energy sphere is, of course, OPEC, 
which has long sought to cap the production of oil in order to keep the price up, the oil then being freely traded. Last week, when OPEC decided on a tighter cap so as to keep the oil price up against the recessionary influences which are all around us now, uh, the falling demand for oil and so on, Mr. Gordon Brown described it as absolutely scandalous. Since the only real difference between the two methods of cap and trade to, uh, is which governments garner the consequent monopoly profit, it's hardly surprising that most people in this country are convinced that the whole purpose of the global warming agenda is to enable the government to extract more money from the public. Uh, be that as it may, the IPCC in its uh, 2007 report suggests that, and I quote, the costs and benefits of mitigation are broadly comparable in magnitude, unquote. Although, in fact, as we've already seen, it greatly exaggerates the benefits of mitigation by systematic undervaluation of the capacity to adapt. But even if it were the case that the costs and benefits of mitigation are broadly comparable in magnitude, the fundamental question when comparing the costs and the benefits, even if we accept the conventional wisdom so far as the science is concerned, and even, we even if we assume that a global agreement is, uh, is attainable, however unlikely that may seem, and it seems very unlikely indeed, is this. How great a sacrifice is it either reasonable or realistic to ask the present generation, particularly the present generation in the developing world, suffering as it still does, from extreme poverty, malnutrition, disease, and premature death to make in the hope of benefiting substantially better off generations 100 or 200 years hence? The answer, I believe, is clear, not a lot. It's not that we don't care about remote future generations. It's that we do care about those alive today, young and old alike. In the light of this, it's probably not worth spending much time on examining the main thesis of the Stern Review, namely that cutting back drastically on carbon dioxide emissions worldwide is not merely necessary, but a highly cost-effective deal. But I think it's perhaps worth pointing out that even on its own terms, Stern's thesis critically depends on applying an ultra-low discount rate to the future, which the overwhelming majority of reputable economists rightly consider unacceptable. In the words of Professor Martin Weitzman of Harvard, for example, and I quote him, Stern deserves a measure of discredit for giving readers an, auth an authoritative-looking impression that seemingly best available practice professional economic analysis robustly supports its conclusions instead of more openly disclosing the full extent to which the review's radical policy recommendations depend on controversial extreme assumptions and unconventional discount rates that most mainstream economists would consider much too low, end of quotation. And this has been echoed by Professor Bill Nordhaus of Yale, the doyen of global warming economics, and pretty well every other economist with a serious interest in the subject. Not everyone, but the great majority. The economics of the Stern Review are, to say the least, distinctly subprime. Uh, nor does uh, invocation of the precautionary principle overturn this conclusion. The fact that climate science is so uncertain that we can't be absolutely sure that there is not a catastrophe awaiting the people of the world 100 or 200 years hence can't rationally be used as the basis for horrendously costly policy decisions now. 
In a world of inevitably finite resources, we can't possibly spend large sums on guarding against any and every possible eventuality in the future. Reason suggests that we concentrate on present ills, such as poverty and disease, and on future dangers, such as nuclear conflict and terrorism, where the probability appears significant, usually because the signs of their emergence are already incontrovertible. The fact that a theoretical future damage might be devastating is not enough to justify substantial expenditure of resources here and now, particularly since there are many other such dangers wholly unconnected with global warming. And it makes no sense to focus only one on global warming and not on these others. That in the real world, resources are finite and that we have to prioritize is, I know, unpalatable to, be, to some, but the constraint is, is, is inescapable. And when it comes to global warming, what is clear is that Stern is highly risk-averse. And it is true that whereas there can be a reasonable degree of objectivity about cost-benefit analysis, there is no objective answer to the question of how risk-averse we should be. But at least four points can, I think, be made. The first is the obvious one, that there is no objective reason why we should be as risk-averse as Stern is. The second is that there can be no justification for being highly risk-averse when it comes to global warming, but much less risk-averse when it comes to other possible threats to mankind. In this context, the results of a survey of accredited climate scientists conducted by Hans von Storck, professor of meteorology at Hamburg University, and published last year, are quite illuminating. Asked what they considered, and these are climate scientists, accredited climate scientists, Ask what they considered the greatest threat facing mankind this century. What proportion do you think replied with either climate change or global warming? Precisely 8%. The third point is that politicians need to be honest with the people and to tell them the truth. If they believe that we need to cut back on drastically on carbon dioxide emissions today at considerable cost and disruption to our way of life, not because there is any real likelihood of significant harm, from global warming, but because there is a remote risk which can't be ruled out of major disaster at some point in the distant future, then they should make the case explicitly in those terms and in no other. And the fourth point is that different cultures, particularly when there are different stages of economic development, are likely to exhibit different degrees of risk aversion. In particular, it is likely that Europe is more risk averse than, say, China if only because we have more to lose. And these differential degrees of risk aversion are yet another reason why the sought-after binding and enforceable global agreement, without which the current policy prescription collapses like a pack of cards, is likely to prove unattainable. The thesis I've sought to develop this evening, and which is expounded more thoroughly in my book, is that even if the current majority view of the science is correct, the policy prescriptions we are told uh, the policy prescription that we are told flows inexorably from it of drastic and urgent cuts in carbon dioxide emissions can conceivably make sense only on the basis of an enforceable global agreement which for good reasons is not attainable or at least if it were to be concluded it wouldn't be honoured. And even if per impossibile it were to be both attained and honoured it wouldn't be cost effective. But in fact, the majority view of the science, while it may well be correct, uh, may not be. I don't, of course, dispute the existence of the greenhouse effect, nor the fact that carbon dioxide is a so-called greenhouse gas, albeit 
a much less important one than water vapor. So increased atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide, whether they're man-made or not, can be expected to have a warming effect. But what is highly uncertain is first how great that warming effect is likely to be, and second, how important this is in relation to the other factors, such as solar activity, that affect the Earth's temperature. So while we can do our best to make an estimate of the cost of substantially decarbonizing the world economy, assuming for the moment that's politically uh, attainable, which is highly unlikely, there is uncertainty about what benefit this will bring in terms of a lower mean global temperature than would otherwise be the case. The majority view among climate scientists is set out in the latest IPCC report, which concludes that most, no, most, not all, most of the recorded mean global warming of half a degree centigrade that occurred during the last quarter of the 20th century was very likely due to the growth of atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations. There had been virtually no recorded warming during the previous three quarters of the century, uh, during uh, which carbon dioxide emissions grew substantially. It was a total in the first 75 years of the 20th century of uh, about a quarter of a degree uh, centigrade increase over the 75 years as a whole. And it, but it was the fourth quarter phenomenon, the acceleration, which led to the current alarm. In the questionnaire, in the questionnaire to well over 500 uh, accredited climate scientists conducted by Professor von Storck, to which I've already referred, he asked them specifically whether they agreed with the IPCC statement that most of the recorded warming of the last quarter of the 20th last century was very likely due to the growth of atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations. The outcome was that some 70% of them, including von Storck himself, incidentally, did agree and 30% disagreed. That's very clearly a majority. It's equally clearly not a consensus. It's also not without interest that despite faster growth than ever before in carbon dioxide emissions, and faster even than predicted, thanks in particular to China, there has been no further recorded global warming whatever so far this century. And when I say this century, I mean this 21st century. I'm not talking about the phenomenon of the well-known El Nino spike of 1998. Needless to say, this, this standstill was not predicted by any of the computer models on which all the projections on which the Earth's temperature might be 100 or 200 years hence uh, are based. Acknowledging this, a group of climate scientists from the world-renowned Hadley Center for Climate Prediction and Research, an offshoot of the Met Office, published an article in Nature in August of last year in which they stated that since the climate models used hitherto, have evidently taken inadequate account of natural temperature variability, they have modified the Hadley Center model and now predict that after this unexpected almost decade-long lull, global warming will resume in 2009 or thereabouts. Well, maybe it will. I don't know. We shall see. Uh, but it certainly puts in some perspective the characteristically absurd claim in the Stern Review that, and I quote, the accuracy of climate predictions is limited by computing power. It's important to continue the active research and development of more powerful climate models to reduce the remaining uncertainties in climate predictions. The uncertainty is endemic. It's inherent in the subject, as any climate scientist will tell you, or whatever side of the debate they are. Indeed, 
Anyone reading the Stern Review would conclude that it is the computer predictions which are the reality, whereas the observed phenomena are somewhat unreliable. Uh, or as even uh, James Lovelock has complained, and I quote from him, observations and evidence are out of fashion. Most evidence now is taken from the virtual world of computer models. Unquote. Like most of those who pronounce on the subject of global warming, from Gore to Stern, I am not a climate scientist. Unlike them, however, I don't claim to know whether the current majority view of the science is correct or not. But you don't need to... I, I'd like to finish this. It won't be very much longer. Uh, but you don't need to be a scientist to recognise and be disturbed by the three big lies which the alarmists regularly trot out. The first is that the science is settled. It manifestly isn't. The second is that global warming is occurring here and now, and indeed, according to many, at an accelerating pace. It manifestly isn't, as the mean global temperature series for the 21st century to date, published by the Hadley Center in conjunction with the Climatic Research Unit of the University of East Anglia, and uh, you can see it in my book, uh, um, bears out, and to repeat, the flatlining has been acknowledged by the Hadley Center scientists themselves. And the third big lie is that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is properly described as pollution. As anyone who remembers the biology they did at school will recall, carbon dioxide is no more pollution than atmospheric oxygen is. So far from being pollutants, both are necessary for life as we know it to exist. Indeed, in general, the more carbon dioxide there is in the atmosphere, the better it is for plant growth. This is known in the trade as the fertilization effect, and scarcely a bad thing. It's difficult not to suspect that if the alarmist case were really as strong as they would like it to be, they would not feel the need to uh, engage in these manifest lies. Uh, in conclusion, as the distinguished phys physicist Freeman Dyson has written, the, and I quote, the Stern Doctrine is based on a gloomy view of the future. The main reason why I oppose it is that the first decade of the 21st century has changed the world irreversibly in a hopeful direction. China and India decided that money is more important than ideology. This was a decision similar to that made by Britain in the 18th century when Britain decided that money was more important than religion." Unquote. In the first seven chapters of my short book, which you kindly invited me to talk about this evening, every statement that I make is carefully documented and substantiated. It's only in the final eighth chapter, entitled A Convenient Religion, that I permit myself to speculate as to why the obsession with global warming, at times it can seem almost a madness, has swept so much of the world, in particular Europe, and especially this country, in the way that it does. The explanation I suggest there may or may not be correct, but there seems to me no doubt that it's become something very close to a secular religion, which with the people divided into believers and non-believers. It uh, marks a turning away from the age of reason, the great glory of Western civilization. It's also a conspicuously intolerant religion. When writing this book, I came across a number of young scientists who were skeptical in private, but dare not put their heads above the parapet, since it would damage their chances of getting funding for their research projects, and generally harm their career prospects. I also came across a number of younger politicians who have doubts about the orthodoxy, but who dare not express them, 
because they are properly ambitious and feel that to do so would blight their chances of preferment. So that is why it has fallen to me, as an old man with his career well behind him, uh, to speak out where others are understandably reluctant to do so. So thank you for listening, and by the way, carry on flying, because I'm sure you will anyway. Thank you uh, very much. Very full lecture. Um, Lord Stern came in for quite a, a hammering. Unfortunately, he isn't here. Our, our speaker plainly thinks he's on another planet. But we are lucky to have his vicar on Earth uh, in the form of um, Simon Dietz, who's the deputy director of the Institute in the school which Lord Stern directs. So I'll invite Simon now to uh, address us. Ladies and gentlemen, I am entirely in favour of a reasoned approach to climate change. Who would not be? And as an economist, I obviously agree that economics can have a great deal to say on the design of policy, although we should of course recognise that there are other perspectives. But in my short presentation, I shall try to convince you that the application of economic reason to climate change leads to a very different conclusion to Lord Lawson. We do, I dare say, agree on many things, but to focus on what we agree on would be boring. For instance, we agree, I dare say, that the appropriate response to climate change should involve both adaptation and reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, what climate wonks call mitigation. But we fundamentally disagree on where the balance lies, and this is of the highest importance. Now, like Lord Lawson, I am not a scientist. However, the story has to begin with the science, unless we take a comprehensive look at the scientific evidence on climate change, and the importance of the word comprehensive will become evident in a moment, we will not be able to formulate a sensible response. Let's start with what is effectively beyond doubt. Burning fossil fuels is the largest single cause of emissions of carbon dioxide. Atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations are increasing, by now precipitously so, and have done so since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Global warming is occurring at rates that are unprecedented in human history and beyond. We have no evidence whatsoever that the rate of warming has ever, not just in human history but in geological history, been faster than it is today. We have no evidence to disprove the hypothesis that the current rate of warming is faster than has ever been experienced on the planet. Excuse me. Finally, the rate of warming observed, the one, is consistent with the other, the observed changes in greenhouse gas concentrations, in addition to well-founded estimates of the greenhouse effect. So at this point, one can reasonably ask what more evidence is required to conclude that man-made climate change is happening. But the, the climate science is uncertain. I do not dispute that for a moment. There are a number of very important things 
that we still don't know. We still don't know the mechanisms and magnitudes of feedbacks between greenhouse gas concentrations and so-called radiative forcing, which is loosely speaking how greenhouse gases affect the world's energy balance. Examples of these feedbacks are clouds, changes in the carbon cycle. We still don't know the precise magnitude of natural effects. And we still don't know the precise extent to which observed warming is man-made. However, the absolutely central point in all of this is that these uncertainties could just as well make things worse as they could make things better. Actually, one can put it more strongly than that. Of all the things we know that we don't know, to quote Donald Rumsfeld, there are very few that could make things better. Most of the things we know about the climate system that we don't know enough to quantify could make things worse. So it's time to consider the real, the comprehensive range of uncertainty about climate change. This slide captures most of the recent attempts that climate scientists have made to estimate how much warming will result from a doubling in the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide compared to before the Industrial Revolution. We will, incidentally, reach that concentration within a half century. Now, it's not important to sweat the details of this graphic, but each distribution shows, on the one hand, the range of possible temperatures that could result from a doubling of atmospheric CO2, and on the other hand, the likelihood, given by the height of the peak, that any given amount of warming will eventuate. Notice that the most likely warming is in the region of about one and a half to four or four and a half degrees centigrade. And the whole of Lord Lawson's presentation was based on this relatively happy range. So the least warming we might expect is one degree centigrade. This is manageable. At least on a global view, climate change is nothing much to worry about if all that a doubling in the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide will result in is a one degree rise in the global average temperature. Although, try telling that to the inhabitants of low-lying Pacific islands. However, look to the right-hand side of the graphic. In the worst-case scenario, the amount of warming we might expect, and these are the projections of climate scientists, not environmentalists, although there's nothing wrong with environmentalists, is truly mind-boggling, up to, and indeed actually beyond, 10 degrees centigrade. And remember, this is the global average. Nobody lives in the global average. Warming will be greater on land than it will be over the oceans, and most of the Earth is covered in oceans. 10 degrees centigrade of warming is more than twice the difference between today's temperature and the temperature during the peak of the last ice age. I think I certainly don't know what that world would look like, but it is not somewhere that I would like to go. So as I see it, the most important claim in Lord Lawson's book is that we can more or less just adapt to climate change. But can we? A number of remarks seem in order. First of all, we must realize that adaptation is not free. It is a cost of climate change. In his book, he points out that the Netherlands has, over a period of around 500 years, adapted successfully to the threat of inundation from seawater. But what cost turning, for instance, Bangladesh into the Netherlands? And this is not a cultural judgment. This is just looking at flood defense. Well, 
Even a relatively basic attempt to construct 800, sorry, 8,000 kilometres of river dikes in the country is estimated to cost around 16% of Bangladeshi GDP. Now, of course, we, the rich countries, can help them pay for it. But the point is, it's not free. Secondly, adaptation is not easy. In no small part because we understand the climate system so little that we don't actually know what we're adapting to. Now here, a focus on global warming is misleading because most of the impacts of climate change will come through water. Well, unfortunately, the global climate models that we have on a regional scale can't even agree on whether it is going to get wetter or drier in particular regions as large as the southwest of the United States of America, for example. So how do we undertake the necessary planning today when we don't even know that? Thirdly, if we're going to take a skeptical look at the effectiveness of policy, which Lord Lawson does with alacrity when discussing reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, that sort of Eeyore-ish, no, no, we'll never be able to do it, we should not at the same time then, for the sake of consistency, take such a rosy view about adaptation policy. The fact is we are not perfectly adapted even to the climate that we currently have, even in the richest countries of the world. Hurricane Katrina, whether it could be attributed to man-made climate change or not, is a good example of that. To give another example, one would not have to look far to see the current problems facing river flood protection in the United Kingdom, characterised as they are by uh, shortages of money and, in, and, and an inability for local councils to coordinate with uh, national environment agencies, to name but a few reasons. Fourthly, it is not at all clear how adaptation is going to help us overcome the really scary phenomena that climate scientists have identified, such as a radical melting of the Greenland ice sheet, a shut-off on the Atlantic thermohaline circulation, a collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, changes in the severity and frequency of the so-called El Nino phenomenon, Indian monsoon chaotic multistability. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not even sure I know what that is, but it doesn't sound to me like it would be perfectly tolerable. Now, do not let me give you the impression that these so-called tipping points are sure to be encountered. Far from it. They are very, very uncertain. But the scientists have identified them as being possible. In the case of, say, the Greenland ice sheet melt, plausible even. And we cannot dismiss them out of hand. In a nutshell, we don't have one of these, a thermostat. Even if we think that the first one or two degrees of climate change might bring benefits and excessive costs, and even if we do think that we can adapt to the costs, we do not have the capacity, through the climate system alone, to shut it down at that bliss point. Or rather, we do, but it's called reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In my view, one of the principal explanations why otherwise perfectly reasonable people go wrong in their assessment of the balance of adaptation and mitigation is that they don't acknowledge the fact that the latter can also be seen as a form of adaptation, adapting to a world in which policy is constraining greenhouse gas emissions. Seen in this light, one has to ask oneself what is easier to adapt to. 
a steady signal that we should reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, ideally by way of a price on carbon dioxide, or uncertain and poorly understood changes in our climate. For one, we already have a set of techniques and technologies to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. A few years ago, two technology experts from Princeton University, Stephen Pakala and Robert Sokolow, set out to find out whether we have enough technologies already past the laboratory bench and demonstrated somewhere in the world that could be scaled up by 2050 to meet the gap between greenhouse gas emissions along a business as usual path and greenhouse gas emissions along a so-called flat path of strong action to reduce emissions. And they divided the gap into seven equal wedges that you can see here. Did they find seven wedges? No. They found 15, including things like energy-efficient buildings, one wedge, 60 miles per gallon cars, one wedge, and stopping cutting down trees, one wedge. These are hardly outlandish, ladies and gentlemen. Moreover, low-carbon innovation is accelerating in the wake of the emerging commitments of our policymakers. We can expect many more wedges to come on stream soon. For another, we know the costs of reducing emissions with more confidence than we know the costs of climate change, and they are not high. One way of thinking about this is to ask what the measures we are likely to need to take in the future are going to cost relative to what we are already spending on reducing emissions. So in the European Union's emissions trading scheme, the price of a permit has for the last year or so been around 25 euros per tonne of carbon dioxide. I'm sure that many of you didn't know that, and that's because we can hardly feel it in proportion to the way in which energy prices have risen over the last few years and thinking about the economy as a whole in proportion to the effects of the uh, onsetting recession. This chart, compiled by the management consultants McKinsey, sets out in order of cheapest to most expensive the cost at the margin of a range of ways to reduce emissions, sufficient to bring about very large reductions in emissions by 2030. You will see that most of them are below the current price of a permit in the EU's emissions trading scheme. You'll also see that many are negative in cost, and that's because they involve savings in energy or other benefits, quite apart from their effect on reducing emissions. So we can be fairly confident that substantial reductions in greenhouse gas emissions are both technically feasible and economic. And that leaves the politics. And here I think it is too easy to be seduced by a good bit of pessimism. I find Lord Lawson's assessment of the politics to be circular. The argument appears to be a global deal can't be reached because we can't reach it. But if there is widespread agreement that we have a problem in climate change, and if the solution looks feasible and economic, then all that's left is to, be, to find a bargain that lines up everybody's interests. And this is precisely why the industrialized countries of the world, far from exhibiting a hitherto unseen masochistic streak, with Europe and Australia now in the vanguard, are pushing to take the lead so that the developing countries, with their justified development needs, will follow. The much derided Kyoto Protocol set the world on its way to a deal, but it was a learning curve and there was a great deal that was wrong with it. What we get next should and can address Kyoto's main weaknesses. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to conclude by arguing that the best way to think about reducing greenhouse gas emissions is like taking out insurance. On this point, most economists now agree, including the well-known Professor Weizmann from Harvard. While he did disagree with what the Stern Review did with respect to discount rates, what Lord Lawson didn't tell you is that we, he agreed that we were right, right about reducing greenhouse gas emissions severely starting now, just we had the wrong reasons in his opinion. So on this point about taking out insurance, I think most economists now agree. And so what better way to end than to give you this quote from the Economist newspaper from two years ago. Just as people spend a small slice of their incomes on buying insurance on the off chance that their house might burn down, and nations use a slice of taxpayers' money to pay for standing armies just in case a rival power might try to invade them, so the world should invest a small proportion of its resources in trying to avert the risk of boiling the planet. The costs are not huge. The dangers are. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an inevitable difficulty with this subject because it's extremely important, it's extremely big, and it's taken most of our time to go through our two distinguished uh, presentations. Now, we've got a little bit of time because there's also an inflexible rule in the LSE uh, that we end these evening sessions at 8 o'clock. So we've got about five or six minutes for some questions. So if there are one or two, uh, let me take them and then indicate who they are for. There's a gentleman down here at the front first, and then you over there, sir. As briefly as you can, please. Thank you. Um, my name's John Newham. Um, Lord Lawson, thank you for your very erudite talk. But I'd just like to ask you, uh, hopefully, a simple question. How, how do you explain uh, the melting of a polar ice cap? Yeah, well, I'll hear the other one. Do you want to have the other question first? Uh, sure. <coughs> gentleman? My, my question actually for the other speaker, is it Dr. Dietz? Hi, um, my name's John, I'm from actually Canada. And one, one thing that you're, first of all, I'm surprised he's such a uh, reply to the, the, the speaker tonight. I noticed most of your sessions tonight don't actually have a rebuttal, but I'll leave that aside. This is another topic. One cannot be, uh, let, let people hear these ideas freely without having a sandbag at the end. But my fundamental problem with, with your point is that you are once again making this problem sound as if we can accomplish it by washing our clothes in cold water and doing nothing more than turning down the thermostat when nothing could be further from, from the truth. In my home country, Canada, we spent tens of billions of dollars on trying to comply with Kyoto. Rather than our emissions going down by 6%, we tried to be the Boy Scouts back then uh, by going further in the world. They went up by 33%. So the idea here that this is going to, we're going to just uh, Walter away to these targets, I think is preposterous, and, 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 and I'd like you to reply to that because uh, I think it's a big issue. Thank you. Thanks. Let's Shall I reply first to the first one? Yes, please do. And uh, let uh, Mr. Simon. Dietz uh, yeah. reply to the second one, which is a good question. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the answer to the first one is there are a number of different theories about uh, why the uh, Antarctic sea ice has been uh, has been in fact, this year it's been increasing. Did you know that? They, you, that's why you're over the Arctic Sea ice. The Arctic Sea ice. Sorry, the Antarctic Sea ice. It, it's been actually extending very substantially this year. 
it's completely changed. Uh, and uh, this is why, uh, customarily, because we do always get these sort of fanciful presentations we had uh, from Mr. Deeds, um, really, highly sticky. That's why you're only shown what's been happening up to 2007. You're never shown the 2008 charts. But uh, the the fact is that nobody knows winds have a have an effect, currents have an effect, and so on. The only way of looking at the temperature is to look at the temperature, and the temperature during the, this century so far has not risen at all. And that's a fact. Uh, on where is it? fact, of course, it's very difficult to measure the global average temperature. But the Hadley Center, for example, has no axe to grind. In fact, this is the arc of the, they're, they're the a great center of the conventional global warming thesis. And even they have admitted that there has been no warming whatever this century. So the, uh, so far, they think it might happen in the future. There are scientists uh, in Germany who say they don't think it's going to resume until 2015. Well, as I say, we shall see. But the fact that you find something happening in the world, this is why I don't like the words climate change. But the climate changes all the time in different ways and different directions, always has done, always will. The, the question is, which you have to focus on is, is the world getting warmer? And if so, how serious are the consequences? And then what is the sensible response? And uh, adaptation, I think, clearly, because there are benefits as well as costs. And adaptation, for example, is allows us to pocket the benefits while reducing the costs. And at the same time, it doesn't require a global agreement, which makes it much more realistic. Could I just press you a little? Because the gentleman's question is specifically about the polar ice, and you went yeah. into a rather more general answer. No, I'm talking about the polar ice, the the, the North Polar Ice. Yes, that's what I say. It's it's uh, it's been increasing this year. It would receded for some years, and it's been increasing this year. And scientists uh, d have different views as to why what determines this, and uh, you can't actually say. It's very difficult to say. But it's particularly know. difficult to say that this is a symptom of warming. Yes. If all the uh, temperature measurements, both land-based and satellite, show there hasn't been warming this century, it's very difficult to say it's to do with it's caused by warming. Simon, do you want to <coughs> deal with the question? Exactly. Exactly. <coughs> this answer will be pretty simple. I said that uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions was feasible and economic in comparison with the costs of climate change, but I didn't say it was going to be easy or fun. In contrast to some uh, well-known presenters on climate change, I am not presenting, pretending that this is a win-win or even a win-lose. This is a lose-lose, okay? It's going to cost us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but if we don't stop climate change, that's going to cost us too. So we have to decide which is the lesser of the two evils. This is certainly not going to be fun, but I think the last thing we should do is just stick our heads in the sand and pretend that it's not happening. Can I press you just one only step fair, further? Only um, in the questioner's country, we've just had an election, uh, which is regarded by many people as significant, precisely because the Liberals proposed what they call their green shift policy, which is a very articulate uh, cap and dividend scheme, actually. And that was pretty clearly unpersuasive to a large number of Canadians. Does that not make a difficulty? Is that what he is not referring to, that you're not going to find a mechanism that can achieve this thing, even if it's arduous? Well, we have to keep trying. And it's a long, there are going to be lots of bumps along the road. But I don't think anyone who looks back to 1992 when the United, Frame, United Nations Framework Convention was signed and ratified, I don't think anyone would look at that history and say we haven't at least come some way along the road. We can take just one or two more, and then we'll have to go. Gentlemen over there. 
Lord Lawson, thank you. Um, sorry, can you hear me? Yes. Um, I haven't been so entertained since Maggie was on Spitting Image, Lord Lawson. That was marvellous. Um, could could I uh, have your response to the rebuttal about um, we can't adapt to, we can't cut emissions because we can't? Sorry, the, we the circular, what's your response to the the idea that your argument is a circular one, that we simply can't because we can't? Well, it clearly isn't uh, circular. What I said uh, was two things. There are very good reasons why a global agreement is unlikely to be a binding global, a binding enforceable global agreement is uh, going to be achievable. Very few, all the evidence points to that not being the case. Secondly, even if it were, it would not be cost effective. And it would be far more cost effective to, uh, uh, to adapt to the consequences of climate change or rather global warming if that is going to occur. And as I say, pocket at the same time, pocket the benefits, uh, but but uh, adapt to uh, to so as to reduce or mitigate, using mitigate in the real sense, the, the costs. That is a far more rational and cost-effective way uh, uh, to go. There's nothing circular about that. You may agree or disagree, but there's nothing circular about it. Fine, thank you, gentlemen up here. Thank you very much. Um, I have read the book from cover to cover. Um, I have a comment and I have a question. Very, I'll be very quick. Um, my comment has to do with the methodology of your book, which I think is really flawed. You don't triangulate your sources, point one. Point two, I'll give an example. You mentioned Popper in respect to scientific method. I mean, um, you need to do more in terms of that reference, actually. So my, um, my comment is that the methodology is deeply flawed through lack of triangulation. I move on to my question. I think that your um, position is determined by um, your own psychology, since you're critical of the psychology of the, the Greens and the Reds and so on in the final chapter. I think you're a market fundamentalist who refuses to take on the idea that government should um, take action in respect of this problem because you are a market fundamentalist who believe that markets must sort things out. Yes? Uh, no, not at all. But I can, I, no, I can see in time, I'm no fundamentalist. Uh, the fundamentalists are the people who, who, who believe this new religion and in the most intolerant way. Uh, I can see where you're coming from. That, that's very clear. Uh, very clear. Uh, very clear. They're very clear. You don't like the market at all and you want to curb it and control it as much as you possibly can. The, the, I'm sure it is true. But, um, but the point is that if you've read my book, which you say you have, I don't, I don't uh, explain this as being some left-wing plot. Uh, it is perfectly true that uh, it does appeal to those who wish to uh, curb and constrain and limit individual freedom, which on the whole I'm in favour of individual freedom. But I say that there are places where you may well need government action and government aid for the poorer countries, I said that might well be the case. But what I, I have said in the book, which some of you may not have read, is that, is that this is, this is, um, this is become a substitute religion. And, uh, and, and this is uh, how I explain it. Not because it's, it's, uh, it appeals to the fact that the, there were two great religions in Europe. Uh, Christianity and Marxism. Uh, Christianity has many fewer adherents 
Uh, nowadays, you only have to look at church tendencies uh, throughout Europe, not just in this country, to see that Christianity is far less powerful than it used to be. You, Marxism has even fewer adherents now. So there is a vacuum. And the, the, we all still have a religious instinct. And we desperately want to believe something. And this has filled that vacuum. That's what it is. That's not market fundamentalism. Well, Lord Lawson, thank you very much indeed. And thank you all very much.